Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're continuing our teaching series, Misunderstanding Jesus. In this series, we're revisiting the odd, abused, and ignored sayings of Christ. This week, Pastor Jason Coker unpacks a seemingly heartless remark from Jesus to a potential new disciple. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, Jesus is approached by a listener in the crowd who asks to follow him. The individual states that he first needs to bury his father, then he will follow Jesus. But Jesus responds, follow me and let the dead bury the dead. What did Jesus mean by this harsh statement? Listen now as Jason shares a new perspective on this odd statement from Jesus in his message titled, Let the Dead Bury the Dead. So we're going to jump into our second to last uh, teaching in this particular teaching series, which we're calling Misunderstanding Jesus. We've been exploring some of the odd or difficult or often misunderstood passages of Jesus and trying to unpack those and try to understand a a bit more about uh, how it is that we can understand those passages rightly uh, in accordance with what we know about who Christ was and what we know about the kingdom of God. We think that's important because in our experience, very often, church is not a safe space where you're being edified. It's a space where sometimes you're being controlled or coerced or manipulated in some way. And the irony is not lost on me that I'm saying that right after I leaned on you to volunteer. Uh, (laughs) But we do know that sometimes church is not a a space where people feel particularly edified. And so we wanted to visit some of these passages that are a little bit more difficult. Today's passage is from Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Uh, We read it a little bit earlier, but I want to go ahead and visit it again, read through it, let it sink in a little bit, and then I'm going to ask you to pray with me, if you would, to get us started. So Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 20. This is right after the Sermon on the Mount, at least in the order of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, jumping in here at verse 18 says this, Now when Jesus saw great crowds around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, And a scribe, the other side of the lake in this case, a scribe then approached and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He goes on, Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This morning, as the worship band was practicing, uh, Graciela, who was the reader for today, she was reading it, you know, during practice, and she said, let the dead bury the dead. Man, what, that's intense. What does that mean? <laughs> and I said, I'm trying to figure that out right now. <laughs> let the dead bury the dead. What does that mean indeed? Would you just pray with me as we jump into this passage a little bit? Father, we thank you for today and the opportunity to uh, come together and to be uh, challenged and edified and, and uh, stretched by the words that are recorded in the Gospels. We ask that as we wrestle with this and other teachings of yours, that you would really grow our hearts, that we would become people who are 
ready and willing to be changed and transformed by you so that we can enter into new life. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I've shared this with you guys before, but uh, when I was younger, I was a pretty terrible employee. Like, I mean, the worst employee. Like, I'm just the kind of person who's not very good at being told what to do. Uh, Some of you can relate to that, right? You get up, you go to work, they expect you to be there at the same time every day. You know, they expect you to, like, fulfill a list of duties. I've just never been very good at that. Like, I generally want to do what I want to do on any given, you know, day of the week. And when I was about 17, I worked in an office setting. There's a very small retail office setting. There were only about six employees in the whole business. And I was one of the, you know, employees there. And you deal with customers. They come in, and we were selling them a product over the counter. And uh, and I was okay at that. I mean, I was fine at selling the product. But what I wasn't fine with was having to sit there every day and, like, wait for customers to show up or, you know, get out our, like, lead sheets and pick up the phone and call and try to generate more customers coming in or, like, cleaning or whatever, all the million things that you do when you're basically waiting for, you know, something to happen, essentially. I was terrible at all of that. Uh, and on top of that, I had a kind of adversarial relationship with my boss, who was the manager of the organization. He wasn't the owner of the business. He was the boss and was my boss. And, you know, as my boss, I'm supposed to do what he says. But the problem is he and I got into this kind of antagonistic relationship, partly because he had the audacity to try to tell me what to do every day. And I just didn't think that was appropriate. And, and partly because he was sort of younger and a bit immature as well. And then to make matters worse, I knew he couldn't fire me because I knew that he really needed me. And so I would, of course, whenever he would push me and push on me a little bit hard or lean on me to do what he wanted me to do, I would just push back. And sometimes if I didn't want to do it, I would just say no. And we would get into these little like arguments and his way of resolving that was to escalate it, you know? And so At some point, he would yell or, you know, and then I would yell back and we would get into these really, it was like we were a really dysfunctional marriage, right? Like we liked each other, but then we would get into these like knock down, drag out fights. And at some point, I started working there when I was about 16. At some point, I think I was about 19, these fights turned into these really like ugly yelling matches. And at the end of which he decided as the manager, that he was going to discipline me. And so one day, we're in one of these fights, and he said, you know what, Jason, I'm tired of this. And he probably said something that I shouldn't say here in church. I'm tired of this, you know, four-letter word, whatever it was. He said, go home right now. Clock out and go home. And I was like, okay. (laughs) Whatever you do, don't throw me in that briar patch. And so I went home and I had a lovely afternoon off, you know, I watched television or, you know, I went to 7-Eleven and played Street Fighter 2 for four or five hours or, you know, drank Slurpees and then went back to work the next day. And sure enough, you know, eventually he said something that annoyed me or I said something annoyed him. We got into a fight and he said, you know what, I'm tired of this. Go home. And I was like, okay, I'm on to something here. Like this is definitely working out in my favor. So I'd go home again. It was really lovely. It was sort of like, you know, once a week or so when I felt like I needed like, you know, like a mental health break, I would just stimulate a fight with him and he would kick me out of the office. And I just thought that was fantastic. 
Then one day I came to work and I was probably in a especially bad mood and I'm sure he was too. And we got into a really big fight. I don't even remember what it was about. It doesn't even matter what we were fighting about. We got into this really big fight and he said, you know what? You know what? Never mind. I'm going home. You run the store. And he left. And he left me in charge. I was like, he cracked the code. He figured it out. <laughs> All he had to do was thrust more responsibility on me as a punishment, and that was it. Like, I wasn't going to participate in that sort of dysfunctional behavior anymore. I became a little bit better employee. I have more terrible employee stories to tell you, but I'll save that for another passage. Uh, I share this story with you because I think that this, this kind of dysfunction... Uh, These kinds of patterns of destructive relating to each other is essentially what's at heart in Jesus' saying that uh, we should let the dead bury the dead. I think what's especially hard about this passage is that it's often used as a way to categorize an entire group of people, usually people who don't believe in your particular expression of Christianity or people who don't belong to your particular church or people who in some way don't conform, what we do is we take a passage like this and we consider them to be the dead. And we sort of set them aside, we marginalize them. And that really is the worst expression of religion. In fact, if you sort of investigate some of the most destructive expressions of religion, the expressions of faith where communities come together and they gather and they coalesce around a core set of ideas and beliefs and they all adhere to those ideas. They all sort of sign on the dotted line. The very best way, the most powerful way to create community around those beliefs is to define an outgroup, a group of people who don't belong, and then to marginalize or vilify or demonize them. And we have a word for that in the sort of our modern vernacular. We call those cult groups. And by cult, what we mean is groups of religious belief that are in a, an unhealthy way gathered around a common set of ideals or, or doctrines that turn out to be unhealthy. And one of the common markers of those sorts of unhealthy religious groups is that they actually ask you to break off the healthy relationships in your life in favor of the unhealthy relationships in that religious community. And so this is actually a pretty common thing in really dysfunctional expressions of religion. Sometimes it's really uh, obvious to see, like uh, with the Branch Davidians in Waco 20, 25 years ago, where people are sequestered into a tight-knit little community and they're told that the whole world is against them and they even arm themselves to be ready for the coming apocalypse. They're told they can't talk to their parents, they can't talk to their siblings, they can't talk to anybody who doesn't adhere to their particular set of beliefs. This is really destructive, dysfunctional religion. And it's not that hard for us to sort of open up our web browsers and find those examples. They exist all over the place. And so I think one of the hard things about this passage, when Jesus says to the young disciple who comes to him and says, Lord, let me follow you, but first let me go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. What's hard about this particular passage is that it sounds a lot like that. It sounds a lot like... Um, 
you know, moving an entire religious community to Brazil and then having them drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, sounds a lot like, uh, you know, the Branch Davidians in Waco. It sounds a lot like the bizarre little cultish groups that separate people from the healthy relationships in their lives. And so that's what's, I think, frustrating about this passage. I think in order for us to understand what's good about what Jesus is saying, we have to go back and investigate what Jesus means by life and what Jesus means by death. And for me, the very best way to do that is to go back to his core teachings. So if you would bear with me just for a moment, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, and we're just going to revisit some of what we've actually talked about quite a bit in the past year. The Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's the core teaching of Jesus. We generally think everywhere Jesus went, he taught Matthew 5, 6, and 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 5, he begins famously with the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are weak, blessed are those who are poor. We visited those a few weeks ago in this series. And then he goes on to say this very famous, familiar saying that those who follow him will be like salt and light in the world. People will be enlightened by who the followers of Jesus are and what it is that they uh, they, they practice in their daily lives, that they will have a preserving effect on the world. That's what Jesus means by salt and light. And then goes on to say that he is here to fulfill all the teachings of the Old Testament or the law, essentially to demonstrate what is good about God. And then he dives into really the heart of his core teaching. He begins to talk about anger. He says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother or with her sister is in danger of potentially committing murder. Now, that's my very brief paraphrase. But Jesus jumps right into the heart of our difficulties as humans, our tendency to want to judge each other out of our anger and how that anger then turns into mistreatment of each other out of anger. And that mistreatment of each other goes on to turn into contempt. Jesus calls it raka, that saying that's a little bit like saying he is an idiot or she is an idiot, not even worth our consideration. Jesus says that these feelings, this sort of progression from anger to contempt, is at the heart of all of our violence towards each other. He goes on to unpack these kinds of points one after the other. He talks about anger this way. He talks about lust and adultery this way. And we talked a few months ago about how Jesus' words about lust have to do with owning another person, possessing them, domineering them to the point where they essentially belong to you. He goes on to talk about uh, divorce and the way that we betray the people that we have made commitments to in our lives. He goes on to talk about manipulating people through promises, right? Don't make elaborate promises to each other because those elaborate promises are really just ways of breaking our promises. We create elaborate loopholes so that we don't have to fulfill our responsibility to each other. He goes on to talk about retaliation and say that the way that we're to deal with our enemies is not to take vengeance against them, not to try to exact revenge on them, but that we ought to love them. We ought to pray for them. All of this is at the heart of Jesus' teaching. And all of this is what Jesus means when he invites us into eternal life. All of these kinds of dynamics are very dysfunctional cycles that we tend to employ in our relationships with each other in order to get what we want. We use anger and we use lust and we use 
promise-making and promise-breaking, and we use uh, revenge and, and, and a sense of the desire to be vindicated. We, we use all of these things as ways in our relationships to get what we want rather than do what is best for the person that we supposedly love and care about or consider our neighbor. These are all cycles in our lives. And I, I think we can see these cycles at play not only in our own relationships, but in our society at large. We see these same cycles of anger and greed and revenge and retribution cycling over and over again and creating more and more dysfunctional ways of being in the world. It's hard to read MSNBC or CNN or any news outlet these days and not see these exact cycles of anger and revenge and power at work in our politics. Jesus is diagnosing essentially the disease that is at the heart of all human problems. And he also gives us a way to break those. He says that we're just to not participate in those dysfunctional cycles anymore. That we're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to engage in anger. We're not supposed to engage in power plays. We're not supposed to engage in revenge. Instead, we refuse to participate in those dysfunctional games and we just step outside of it and break that cycle. Jesus says that that is the way to eternal life. A kind of life that is truly good and healthy and life-giving instead of that old life that just perpetuates cycles of violence. Cycles of violence in your marriage or between you and your children or between you and your siblings or between you and your boss. Jesus gives us the way to break that. Understanding that that's what Jesus means when he talks about life then helps us, I think, to understand what Jesus could mean when he talks to his disciple about allowing the dead to bury their own dead. See, for Christ, those who are dead are those who are trapped in these cycles of dysfunction. The people who are stuck there, constantly trying to one-up each other and gain ground on each other and manipulate and coerce and cajole and threaten and do all the things that we do in order to be masters of our relationships and masters of our world. So some of you know what it's like to be in these kinds of relationships. Some of our relationships can be extraordinarily toxic and dysfunctional. Earlier today, I invited you to think about some of the relationships in your life that might require reconciliation. And, and I think it's part of the gospel to do that. To, to not only break these cycles of toxicity and abuse and dysfunction, but then because of the grace and the life that Christ brings to us, we are able to stand in a redemptive way in those relationships that then can heal them. Some of you have experienced that. Like Christ has come to you in such a way that you are able to see that dysfunctional pattern and you are able by his power and grace to say, no, I'm not going to play that game anymore. I love you. I want to be close to you but I'm not going to participate in that toxic dysfunction 
anymore. And very often, just that act, just saying no to really destructive behavior, is enough to break that cycle and create a space of healing. I've experienced that, and I I suspect some of you have too, where that old, really hurtful relationship started to be redeemed in some way. I think that's what the gospel is all about. I think that's what God wants for us and for our relationships. But I also know that that's not always the outcome. Sometimes those relationships, despite our best efforts to to stand and say no and to not engage in unhealthy behavior, um, those relationships don't get fixed. And, And we don't refuse to act this way. We don't refuse to engage in unhealthy behavior. We don't love to change the other person. That would just be another form of dysfunction. It would just be another form of manipulation. No, what we do is we say, as Christians, as followers of Christ, I will not do that anymore. And that itself, refusing to engage in hurtful, violent, coercive behavior, becomes an act of love. Love for the person and love for yourself. Sometimes that redeems, sometimes it doesn't. Now, you can know these kinds of relationships in your life because they sound just like what Jesus is describing. So, these relationships can look like having somebody in your life who is constantly engaging in angry outbursts because you're not giving them what they want. Now, I'm not talking about like, Everybody gets angry on occasion. Everybody raises their voice on occasion. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that person in your life who every time they aren't getting their way, their default go-to response is to elevate in anger and use that anger to bully you into what they want. The other way that I've experienced this is not just outbursts of anger, but outbursts of overwhelming, uncontrollable weeping or sorrow. Like when somebody goes from zero to 60 emotionally, immediately, in order to get you to do what they want you to do. That's really toxic, dysfunctional, unhealthy behavior. Sometimes it looks like somebody shaming you for your behavior, shaming you for who you are, shaming you for Uh, Being a woman, shaming you for not being a woman, or shaming you for not being the right kind of man, or shaming you for not belonging to the right category of people, or shaming you for having the wrong beliefs, or shaming you for having tattoos, or shaming you for wearing whatever it is that you wear, or reading the wrong kind of Bible, or not showing up to the right family function, whatever it might be, when you don't do what they want you to do, they turn towards shame as a way to get you to comply. And if shame doesn't work, then they shun you. They make sure that everybody knows that you are a shameful person and that we all should exclude you. And I'm, again, not talking about how we often, with people that we deeply love and are deeply connected to, sometimes get angry and sometimes say the wrong thing and sometimes distance ourselves from each other because we're hurt. 
That's not shunning. Shunning is when an entire community of people, whether it's a family or a church or a neighborhood or a workplace, they all decide to push you out because you don't fit the bill. That's violent, coercive, toxic behavior. It can also look like possessiveness or dominance. I think this is part of what Jesus was getting at when he's talking about the way that uh, we handle things like lust and divorce. In Jesus' day, sexuality and marriage were often ways to control and dominate women. And that's still true sometimes. And so a relationship that somebody is, uh, where somebody is constantly trying to domineer you, constantly trying to possess you, when they demand blind allegiance or blind loyalty from you because you belong to them in some way, that is toxic, destructive, unhealthy behavior. Aggression or vindictiveness when they don't get their way and they immediately escalate to really aggressive behavior, whether it's active or passive forms of aggression, that is violent and vindictive behavior. And for many of us, the big one uh, is bribing or withholding. When people use money to get you to do what they want, either by promising to spend money on you or for you, or by threatening to withhold money from you if you don't comply with what they want. This is, I think, very close to the heart of what Jesus was condemning when he talked about greed. Greed is not just our desire to have all the money in the world. Greed is really our desire to have power over others. It's our desire to have power over our circumstances. In many cases, it's our desire to have power over God. Because we think that if we have all of the power, then finally the world will be the way it is supposed to be, the way that we think it should be. I love some of what we sang today really got to the heart of this. When we sing that Christ is king, that God is king of our hearts, what we're really saying is we're not. We're saying that we're not in control, we are not king, and we have no right to be. Most of this behavior comes down to the desire to control other people. And when we engage in healthier behavior, when we're able to break that cycle of toxicity and abuse and destructive behavior with another person, when we're able to stand and say, no, I'll no longer engage in that kind of activity, when we do that, sometimes what happens is we lose the relationship. And this, I think, is the heart of what Jesus is getting at when he tells his disciple to let the dead bury the dead. I don't know what was going on in that disciple's family, but I think it's very likely that what Jesus was saying to him was, it's time to move on. It's time to stop allowing your family, in this case, it's time to stop allowing your family to dictate what your life is all about. Now, the bigger context of this passage is obviously that Jesus is calling his disciples to a high level of commitment to him. 
He's challenging them. Are you willing to be committed ultimately to the kingdom of God? My way of hearing that, my way of understanding that is, are you willing to be committed 100% to a way of life in the world that's genuinely good and right and true? And I don't mean like carrying the right banner of Christianity. I don't mean reading the right version of the Bible. I don't mean worshiping in the right way. I mean being a person who is genuinely connected to the goodness of God. That's the kingdom of God. Where God's power and grace and mercy and rule and reign are able to bring you to to a place where you are living out a life that is eternally, truly good. And it's my experience that when you make that the organizing principle of your life, when you gather everything in your life around that, that kingdom, that trueness, that goodness, that rightness, and you stand and refuse to engage in toxic, dysfunctional, coercive relationships, those who are toxic and coercive and dysfunctional will leave you behind. And sometimes it's good and right to say, enough. I'm done. That's terribly sad, I think. I think Jesus uses the the language of death on purpose because there's a grieving that happens there. It doesn't mean that you shun those people. It doesn't mean that you use the same tactics. It just means you no longer allow them that place in your life. And very often they will leave you instead. And so today, my challenge to all of us is that we do the work to try to sort that out. Who are the relationships in our lives where we need to stand and say, no, I'm not going to engage anymore in this kind of unhealthy behavior? Who do we need to do that with? Who do we need to wrestle with because we're the ones engaging in that toxic, unhealthy, coercive behavior? And who do we need to move on from? Who do we need to grieve? What relationships do we need to let go? Today there are candles up here, and several of you came in and said, oh my gosh, was there a mass shooting? Because usually what we do is when there's a mass shooting, we will light candles for those folks. Um, There's no mass shooting today, but I am going to invite you to come up at the end of the service during a time of reflection and worship to do some work around these relationships that have been a place of difficulty for you. So if there is somebody in your life that you're trying to figure this out with, whether you're trying to see a redeemed relationship with that person, or whether you're wondering if it's time to just move on and let it go, I want to invite you to come forward and do one of a couple things. You can light a candle for that person. This is not like considering them dead. This is offering them up in prayer to God. This is letting them go. This is engaging in the grief work that has to happen for you to say, it's okay for me to move on. 
And if there's a future of redemption and reconciliation and peace there, great. I'll do my part. But to the extent I can't control what they think and feel and say and do, I'm just going to let them go. You could light a candle for that person as an expression of prayer for them. You could kneel here at the stage. The stage is a place of prayer. We often use this as a place of prayer. You could kneel here and pray quietly to yourself. Or you can pray quietly in your seat. If it helps you to take a connection card and write that person's name on it and write a little prayer, you can do that too. Whatever helps you to process that transition, I want to invite you to do. I'm going to ask Alex and the band to come up, and they are going to play a little music as we enter into this space of reflection. If you decide to come up and light a candle, there are, there's a cup of matches right here on the left. Just take a match, light it here from one of the larger candles, light one of the candles for yourself, and then take that match that's hot and drop it into this cup over here on the right so that it doesn't you know, land on the carpet and start a fire. That would be bad. Uh, but I do want to encourage you, whichever it is that you choose, I want to encourage you to take what's in your heart around this issue of, of dysfunctional relationships in your life, and I want to encourage you to do something with it. It's not enough for us to sit and hear and think we need to act on what God is calling us to. And so that's why I'm inviting you to some actions, whether it's lighting a prayer or kneeling to say a prayer or praying in your seat and writing somebody's name on a piece of paper. Uh, acting out our prayers in this way helps us to solidify what God is calling us to do. Our bodies are a tool for use when we do that. So the band is going to play. I'm going to just pray a, pray a prayer real quick here to wrap us up, and then I want to invite you to come forward. So would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you this morning, and we offer up these prayers to you. We bring these relationships to you. We do this as a humble act of giving up our power of refusing to engage in the power games and the manipulation that we are often sucked into when we are living out a life of death. And instead, we just want to say to you that we are ready to walk into a life that is characterized by eternity, that's characterized by your grace and your health and your goodness in our lives. And that means saying no to those dysfunctional cycles. And so today, as we bring our prayers to you in different ways, we ask that you would really make this real in our lives. Give us the courage to let the dead bury the dead, to move on to new life and new relationships if that's what's needed. And we ask, Lord, that in our grief, if we are letting go of people that we have been deeply connected to, that you would minister to our grief, that we wouldn't try to cover it up or hide it or ignore it or pretend it doesn't exist, but that you would really pour out your healing grace and mercy on us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Come on forward when you're ready. I'm just going to give you a few minutes to process this.